Hey, and welcome to the third episode of the It's a Mimic Campaign Builder. I'm Dan. And I'm Adam. Over the course of this series, we will be sitting down and creating a session-by-session campaign that you can either follow along with week-by-week or take inspiration from as you see fit. These first five episodes are on basic campaign development that will set the tone of the rest of the series. And episode six will launch us into our specific campaign where we break down session prepping by level. Last episode saw us determine our villains for the campaign, and we already know our overall plot. In this episode, we're going to be choosing a starting geography and important landmarks to help orient the players in the world. Remember that through the duration of this series, we'll be building off an assumed party of the following five archetypes. A warrior, a priest, a mage, a criminal, and an outdoorsman. They'll be slowly leveling up, and we'll make sure that we're clear about what tier and specific level we're working on. Let's get to building. All right, Adam. So today we're talking about landscapes and geography and uh, why they matter. Now, um, we have in previous episodes talked about our plot and our tone. Now we're starting to get to the real world meat and potatoes of our uh, campaign building. Oh, you're throwing that to me? Yeah. Yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So the thing about knowing your landscape is, as we say over and over again on the, on the other podcast, your environment matters. It matters so much. It can change everything about any given encounter. So you need to know not only what you're doing and who you're fighting, which was episodes one and two in yeah. order, but where? Where? Where you're doing these things. <laughs> and frankly, when as well is also part of the setting. Now... We don't talk about it very often, but, I mean, we're in a medieval setting in D&D, but it doesn't have to be. It can be Victorian era. It can be, you know... It can be steampunk. It can be futuristic. It could be it, prehistoric. It, yeah, exactly, right? So it can be it can be post-apocalyptic. There can be a million different ideas, but um, you should know not only when, but where, because this is going to determine um, not only your level of technology and magic as well, but it's going to determine your tone and feel, which we talked about in the plot episode as well. Exactly. And this could be easy enough to do if you are stealing from other inspirations or more established, already built campaigns. But for the purpose of homebrewing, we really want to show you kind of what's available to you and then how we go about building our campaigns. So... Um, with official D&D, there are several landscapes and stuff that you could choose from. So, Adam, you want to break these down for us? Yeah, sure. I'm going to hit these really quickly because anybody with the PHB is going to be able to figure this out pretty quickly. So, I grabbed this list when I was doing my prep, and it's all from the Druid Circles and the Ranger uh, Natural Explorer land types. Yeah, it's kind of, those are the places they oddly chose to tell us what kind of environments are where in, in D&D? Yeah, but they definitely left some glaring omissions, which, as we talked about in the Ranger episode, isn't necessarily helpful because too many options will lead to kind of a... a What's missing? Yeah, a, a, a washing down, a, a diluting of the actual power of what you do get. Yeah. However, when you're building a campaign, it can be very useful to know that there are more options than just the regular listed ones. So let me go through this really quickly. D&D promotes the Arctic, but they don't discuss the Tundra. For purposes of a ranger and a druid, I would have those two be the same, but you yourself know that you can get into Tundra or uh, instead of Arctic, right? Exactly. They do coast, but they don't really talk about the open ocean or underwater. This is really going to matter for your Tritons and your Sea Elves. Mm -hmm. 
there's desert, but they don't discuss wasteland or, or hard pack desert. Yeah. It's, it's the idea of sand more than it is about just, just bedrock and cracked earth that you're walking along. There are forest, but not jungles. Grassland, but no marshes. There's mountains. But there's no no hills or foothills or badlands. Uh, I'm thinking of the uh, the spires in Montana kind of deal. Uh, kind of. I'm also thinking about that portion of the Lion King, the badlands beyond the. Oh uh, yeah, where the shadow touches. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Right. So uh, there's swamps, but not bogs. And there's the Underdark, but they don't really have anything specific for dungeons or just other generic underground areas like cave systems that don't connect to the underdark and those who have been paying attention know that those are going to be massively important for us yes absolutely so the other thing that they don't even hint at is the concept of urban or rural this is so important to us um as players just in fifth edition alone because of Waterdeep and Baldur's Gate. And there's a lot of stuff coming out right now. Sharn, the City of Towers, yep. is huge in Eberron. You could play an entire campaign in Sharn and never leave the city borders. Yeah. What about Ravnica, which is just one big massive city-state, mm-hmm. right? So there are these entire campaign areas, these, these landscapes that people aren't playing. And you as a DM need to start thinking about what you can do to help people along with that, right? So maybe uh, sit there and say, look, we're going to be doing jungles. There's a lot of jungle in here. If you are a ranger or a druid, just take your forest stuff and apply it to jungles as well. And we haven't even discussed really the other planes. Now, we're not going to jump into the planes in depth right now, but just really quickly, there's the prime material plane where we will be playing uh, this campaign, as well as Two mirror planes, two transitive planes, four inner planes, 16 outer planes, the far realms, whatever that means. Then there's extra planar realms, like uh, they introduced in Eberron, there's the plane of dreams yep. and other weirder stuff out there. Also many demi-planes and whatnot that exist. Yeah, a Curse of Straw doesn't actually take place in the Shadowfell. It takes place in a demi-plane. Yep. Um, and then, of course, there's the timescape. If you want to go hopping through time, or you want to play on giant golden rotating orbs with cities on them and stuff. Do your damnedest. You be you. If you want to fly through space on a, on a spaceship that, that looks like a pirate ship, go nuts. More yep. power to you. But know what your landscape is. And you should really let your players know ahead of time kind of what they should expect. Yeah, because the last thing you want is for your ranger to take forest and you're in the jungle the entire time. Yeah, and you're not going to let them translate that over yeah so if you want them to uh to get the most out of their character the druid circles and the natural explorers and and all of this if you have a totem of the bear warrior or uh for a barbarian who is going to be collecting totems of of different animals and he's going to be collecting skulls one and you give him an underwater campaign full of invertebrates you're not giving him any (laughs) any helping hand here right So now that we know what they are and what's available to us as Dungeon Masters, as people building campaigns, here's kind of what Adam and I decided on. Now, at the end of this episode, you'll hear us tossing ideas back and forth at each other. Um, That was done before this. Here's what we've decided on, in case you... That's just a little treat for you guys at the end of the episode. So we have decided that we wanted this to kind of be a high fantasy, medieval, Europe-style campaign. This is your traditional 
Dungeons and Dragons feel campaign. Yep, absolutely. There are dragons around. There are castles and so on and so forth. Exactly. Um, now, we also chose to go kind of faith over science with a lot of this because, hey, the gods are dead. And if it's a very rational, scientific kind of uh, tone or culture, well, the gods disappearing isn't going to matter as much. Yeah, because we know in, in our plot and with our big, bad, evil guy. And like, here's the other thing we should say right off the bat. We're not starting in the Underdark. We know that because that's our plot to go to the Underdark. We're not starting in the Outer Plains because we know that because we're going to be heading to the Outer Plains. Yeah. And we're not starting in any place that's really heavy, heavy, heavy into science because we're fighting Asmodeus, the evil god, at the end of the campaign. Yep. Right? So make the gods be important early. This is why it's important to know what your plot is before you look at your setting. Exactly. We also have the fact that magic and magic users is, uh, they're the nobility of this world. They're, they're the higher society. Yes. We, we really wanted to have, um, the idea that magic is not available for the common person because we know that we're going to be dealing with guilds and with guilds comes missions and magic items and stuff. Yeah. So we wanted to add a really special feel to it. Uh, which we'll talk about the next episode. We don't even know what we're doing with guilds yet. Yeah, but we yet. just figured that we should have magic and magic items be more rare. And that's going to let our our players feel like heroes right from the beginning. And that's even going to bring in a certain sense of realism to it. Your characters are going to be using their own abilities, not the boons granted to them by a magic item. So what this is going to translate to is this is going to be a little bit more of a gritty, realistic campaign. We're not going for a comedy. Adding into the fact that this is not going to be a comedy is the fact that the gods are real. Like, this, they, they aren't thought of spiritual entities that people just have faith in. They are real and proven in this world there there's no debate on whether or not the gods exist i mean there's there's atheists for sure and there's the irreligious for sure but the gods are real it's going to take our status quo and it's going to add a level of panic to it right from the beginning when the gods go missing we haven't even decided how this is going to impact clerics or paladins or druids yet to not have their days or warlocks even, or warlocks right? yeah so we haven't figured that out yet. We just know that we like the plot point and we're not going to cripple the classes. We are just going to say, hey, look, the gods are missing. What does that do for, for you? And you can watch other people around the world descend into chaos, right? All, this almost feels post-apocalyptic or apocalyptic. It's not post-apocalyptic. Yeah, the apocalypse is happening now. Yeah, it's, it's right now that... Things are turning to shit, and you know that in the big cities, churches are going to burn down, or people are going to freak out. And There's rioting in the streets. <laughs> they're going to blame each other, and who worships an evil god? Let's rout out that cult that we've allowed to live in that in the chapter house over there. This must be their fault. Like There will be fear. <laughs> there will be persecution as a result of this. Yeah. This is where we wanted to start from, and if everyone just kind of, you know, thinks the gods are, are real, that's not a big... It's not going to add the weight to it that it needs to. So the gods are proven, they're real. Basically, in, in setting recap, and in, in just to give you guys uh, broader terms here, we're doing a standard fantasy world that is taking place on the prime material plane, and we're making it up ourselves. This is going to be homebrew. The reason that we're doing this is because it's easily accessible for a podcast. If you want to be in the plane of fire, that's fine. But there's not a whole lot for us to talk about in the plane of fire that people doing an aquatic campaign can can grasp onto. Yeah. Right? So we're picking kind of neutral ground for our starting point. Um, and so that's why it's standard fantasy. We all know what we're getting into. 
the prime material plane, we all know that most campaigns, if not all of them that I've played, have started in, in a prime material plane. Yeah. And the homebrew world, so that you guys can watch us build our pantheons and come up with our plot. And we're not going to set Baldur's Gate on fire. Right, so, <laughs> or or be set in Gotham City. So before we end up getting into the uh, nitty gritties of the decisions that we've made about our world and and why we're interested, let's roll dice to see who gets to determine, um, or who gets to reveal what we've determined to uh sure, to people. Let's listening. do it. All right, I got a nine. Uh, I got a twelve. So I'm gonna go first. All right, sounds good. So the very first thing that we needed to do was discuss where we are going to start from in this campaign. What is our home base? What is our our normal landscape? Where are we starting our guild? And uh, what do the what do the characters call home? And we decided that most people tend to focus on forestry, um, and not forestry, but forest campaigns. <laughs> they're out there just cutting down trees. Everyone's a lumberjack, yeah, except <laughs> except a druid who's just planting the trees, following behind them, right? No, no, so. Uh, everyone focuses on on plains and grassland and forest and and this kind of green earthy nature. We wanted to be a little bit different, but we know we're heading into the underdark. So Dan and I sat down and said, "Let's have some contrast. We're really going to lay out the idea of it being bright and sunny, and it's going to be very different. So when you go into the underdark, the darkness feels more pervasive. It feels heavier. So let's go with the desert." So we decided we're going to go with a with a sandy desert, and we're going to plunk a, a small town, like a trading city, right in the middle of it, and that's that's where we're going to start from. It's going to be mostly humans, yep. But you're going to be able to find most of your PHB races in there, and a small smattering of your Volos races. Yeah, you're probably not going to be finding a Triton or a Sea Elf, though. No, not so much, unless they're running from one area to another, right? Exactly. So, yeah. So this gives us also the opportunity because we want to talk guilds and we want to do a lot of exploration. We're also going to be in kind of a central hub where two roads, two major highways cross right outside right outside of town yeah so as a result this gives us the ability to have our guild members whatever that looks like go out and explore so to the north um adam and i had decided that we wanted to have kind of this northern barrier mountain uh idea where further north than the mountains no one really knows what's up there but they know the mountains themselves exist and they are near impassable um these things are going to be harsh Tall, cold, and of course, mountainous. Um, they're going to be full of dwarves <laughs> because of that. Uh, you're also going to find maybe some giants or some uh, goliaths, some um, stone elementals. Those kind of things will all be present here. Yeah, Dan's going to get his rock gnomes in this board. Oh yeah, that's where they're going to be. <laughs> so we decided to go from the sunny and the warm and the flat of the desert to the polar opposite up north, right? To the to the cold, frigid, pointy, rocky, steep mountains. The reason that we do this is so that we immediately have, if we draw up a map, it is clear that this area is different from this area, and it gives very visible, straightforward cues to the players about where are we going, and we went with the obvious of dwarves live in the mountains, yeah. because we're not trying to break the wheel on this. We want them to know... Everybody knows dwarves are in the mountains, right? We're not going to change their minds on this and say, oh, no, it's only halflings in this world. Yeah. You can do that in yours if you would like to. 
but for the sake of an audio medium where we are trying to <laughs> teach you guys how to build a campaign or show you at least our versions of it, we're going pretty simple and straightforward on this one. Yeah, and this is, it should be noted, we're kind of setting our uh, starting location central and then north from here is where our, the, these mountains will be. To the south, we've decided that instead of the wilderness that there is to the north and the impassable mountain range there, the south is going to be very welcoming. This is going to be a major urban center. This is not a metropolis. It's a wonder of the world. It's a megaopolis. This yeah. thing is, is huge. There are literally tens of millions of people that live here and peoples from all over the world. And one of the things that um, that we really want to draw from is the idea that there's consistent trade through this region. Yeah. This gives us enough people on the highways that are going to pass our main town going up north or going through our town to the crossroads to go east or west, right? So what we've done is we've designed a major hub nearby that we can go explore in theory or... Um, or at least be able to have news coming out. We'll we'll have a, an idea of where the trade routes are, yeah. where there are uh, refugees coming from or heading to. And so this gives us uh, kind of where the pilgrimages is going to be. The gods are real. You know there's going to be lots of temples and religions. And, yep. and it's a smattering of people. And we haven't really gotten into too much of who lives there or why, except that it is multicultural. Everybody lives here. Yeah, it, it, I mean... With the city that big, and um, and just in terms of scale, there's miles between this and our main starting city. Oh, days and days of travel. Yeah. So, and I mean, there's going to be little settlements that pop up. We don't know where. We haven't discussed that yet in between, but this is going to be the biggest city in the region, if not the world. Yeah. This is going to be, when people come to this continent, they're heading to this city. Exactly. 90% of the people, if you're on another continent, continent and you say... Hey, where are you from? And you say this continent, which we haven't named yet. Yeah. But, oh, I'm from this continent. They assume you're from this city because yeah. this is the city that's there. And and we wanted it to also in terms of like just a tone of the city. It's kind of idyllic. Like it's a temperate uh, temperature. So you don't have to worry about the same heat issues you have living in a desert. It's going to add that nice little contrast there as well as, you know. Easy access to water, which is also going to be an issue living in the desert, right? So we're setting up this almost utopian feel of this massive urban environment to the south. And, spoiler warning, this is the city we're sinking into the sinkhole. We're taking this big boon, this wonderful jewel, this great thing, and we are sinking this into the sinkhole, and it disappears, and that's why it's so important. So we've gone north, we've gone south. So I'm going to go the other way. We're going to go to the west now. Um, and I wanted to do a... Um, a, a, a change from the dry, arid desert and do the humid, hot, because it's going to be along the same kind of latitude, like, yeah. um, swamp. And this is going to be a place where um, we bring in swamp elves. Now, I, I've discussed I'm not a big fan of elves in, in general, especially wood elves. I don't like that feel of them, so I, I want to kind of flip that coin on its head and have like these wet, gross, slimy elves that live in this region. This is going to be 
um, impassable, but there's going to be a lot of uh, agriculture and stuff that's done here because the land is far more fertile because you're in a swamp. It's more fertile, but there's also going to be flooding and stuff. So there's going to be like weird, wet, like mushroom farms and things. Yeah. There's going to be like dairy farms, but chickens are going missing yeah. quite a lot in here. We, we were talked about um, a lot of the wild the idea of the wilderness of there being monstrosities hunting in the treetops and this is where we're going to get not not necessarily jungles but the swamps will be deep and there will be black dragons that are living in the swamps and trolls and it, it's a wild gross ugly place where people don't live long yeah so we have this super dangerous uh really foreboding thing to the west of uh um, of our main city and with that we could kind of bring in a little bit more of this otherworldly thing as well if we really needed to we're setting this up early right as this this dark place that people don't go yeah you see this consistently with most fantasy realms from George R.R. R. Martin to J.R.R. R. Tolkien anyone with R.R. as middle initials has really latched onto the idea of there being a distant dark evil land yeah. with evil magics and we don't know what goes on beyond there and and that's what this is going to be for us as well um, it's going to be to the west um, because uh, the sun sets in the west yeah right and this is where evil lives Okay, and finally, we're looking at the east. And for the east, we decided that we're just going to have a coastline. This is the oceans. We wanted barriers in every direction. And these barriers are going to be an impassable wall of mountains to the north, the deep, dark, foreboding evil to the west. The, the massive city to the south. and Which will become a sinkhole that you can't pass through. Uh, and so... To the, to the east is going to be our ocean. This is our coastland. And, of course, Dan wanted to fill it with gnomes. And so I acquiesced on this one, and he fucking owes me. <laughs> um, we also wanted to have uh, a little bit of a archipelago um, over there. There's going to be islands that you could get to, and you might be able to see on the horizon as well. This adds the possibility of there to be boat travel. Yep, and while we know that we're heading south, and that's the direction of the campaign, there will be more than enough opportunities for us to go to any of these locations and explore them a little bit before we end up down in the dark, underdark, underground setting and then start plane hopping. We do want to spend enough time on the Prime Material Plane, and in our initial Tier 1 and two and Tier 2 um, storyline, we want to spend the time exploring again the concept of the status quo yeah we want to have a home that the characters leave when they get into their tier three and tier four that's part of the arc of the plot yeah and you'll notice that most plots do that yeah you'll notice that like tier one you are kind of leashed to your starting city tier two that's when they start to pull that leash off and you could now explore the the borders tier three you are world hopping Tier four, you are planes hopping. Yeah, and so we've discussed that the ideas of um, of there being bo borders and boundaries, every world needs boundaries. How many just disappeared into the ocean in that direction? We didn't want to do that. We wanted to have legitimate boundaries. You can go off and you can have campaign down in this direction. If you want to explore in another campaign in the future, we wanted to kind of flesh out our world a little bit. But with the dwarves, the elves, and the gnomes, uh, that are there, and then the multicultural human area as well. We're hitting all of our big fantasy tropes. 
And we're doing that very intentionally, just in case your party wants to explore those. I mean, we're already established our setting as being typical, standard, high fantasy. To have uh, standard, typical, high fantasy, you need standard, typical races and uh, cultures to explore. Yeah, and keeping in mind as well that when we were talking about our uh, overall plot, the plot for Tier 1 is The Gods Have Gone Missing figure out why, that's exploration. Mm-hmm. Uh, tier two is the Underdark is invading, and we lose. Our city is probably going to get overrun. Where do we run to? Right? And so this means that we're going to be pushed back into other parts of this world. So we kind of want to establish that and give the players agency and options about where they're going to go when the time comes. So we've kind of discussed what our, you know, north, south, east, west, what these big... Uh, uh, landscapes are but we also wanted to fill these things up and we got some interesting landmarks that we want to put in them it's important to have landmarks for a very specific reason and that is to give a touchstone for the players to be able to grab they're not necessarily going to remember that it's mountains to the north unless they know what those mountains are what's in there why they should care and so that's what these landmarks are going to be and again we've chosen strategic landmarks as well something that's going to not just be that cliff there that looks like it has a face in it we are choosing wonders of the world because if we're in a high fantasy campaign let's get let's get fantastical yep and this is when you could kind of really let yourself go crazy you could have your floating islands you could have whatever you want in this part when you're building but don't go too specific or too numerous for these areas and then we're doing that very intentionally to kind of give your players an idea of the tone and what to expect there something to generate rumors about in your main city but we don't want to put you know the time into building every single small little settlement within these regions, just these big landmarks. Yes, remember, when you go to do your your session zero as a DM and everyone else is coming with player ideas and options and we're talking about safe spaces and boundaries and whatnot, and you, as your dungeon, as a dungeon master, you show up, you should be coming with three or four campaigns kind of cocked and ready to go. Yeah. If you have named every single little landmark, city, town, lake, river, road, and everything else. And then your players go, ah, no. You're going to go home and cry. Yes. And so <laughs> do your, do yourself the favor on this and just come up with a general idea with one or two major landmarks. Because we went north, south, east, and west, we're going to go a landmark in each just because that makes that makes a little bit more sense for exactly. us. Yeah. Um, and it adds us or it allows us to add flavor. It's also fun when you get to put this shit on a map. So to the north, we have um, the mountains that we mentioned earlier that is harsh, uh, inhospitable, um, very uh, sharp angled mountains. We're not talking little like molehills. We're talking the high peaks. Um, and when you have a mountain range, you gotta have volcanoes. And of course, in this mountain range, you will have your dwarves. And we wanted to figure out a reason for why these dwarves were here and you're up in the mountains. So of course there's gonna be volcanoes. So why not have the dwarves run a monastery that is central in one of these calderas that is, uh, you know, the pit of a volcano. One of the things that we latched onto that we really liked was the idea of I'm sorry, I'm going to cut you off real quick before you get into this monastery. <laughs> um, was the idea of it being snowy peaks. 
that occasionally just erupt with fire. And yeah. so we have the entire area suddenly floods in the valleys because all of the snow has melted. And like really volatile. This is part of the reason why it's impassable, but there's one volcano that is consistently boiling in and amongst. And so you climb up through the through the cold to find heat. And you see how we're grabbing contrast yes. over and over. And this is where it becomes interesting. Dear friends, contrast is interesting. Embrace it. Yes. Right? So uh, what we decided to do, and, and I mean, we mentioned earlier, be ridiculous. You're allowed to be ridiculous. Let's see what we got. This is one of these ideas. We have a monastery that is on a spire in the middle of a lake of lava at the top of one of the mountains that's only accessible by long, swaying rope bridges. The monastery is primarily run by dwarves, and it's a holy site. But it's in a volcano, so these dwarves aren't digging. No, as a matter of fact, they've heard that there are gems and riches underneath in the base of this spire, but... They, it's also a holy site, and there's magma and lava. They're not going down there. They don't want to end up toppling this spire. But they know they're sitting on these riches, and it's consistently eating away at the dwarves. And they become, like, it's a holy site, but they're a little craven. They're a little, they're a little greedy, too, because it's what they think about. They're rich, but they can never get to those riches. So what do you do with a bunch of dwarves that are sitting there twiddling their thumbs wanting to dig but they can't? Well, they're going to craft. And what they're going to and what they've done is they have changed this spire that holds this city up and they've carved it into two intricately uh detailed dwarven lovers fabled in history whose outstretched hands are holding this monastery up. So this is one great big piece of rock that is that is stories and stories and stories tall that they have just like they've grabbed rope harnesses to go down and carve the that's I, I love this idea. This is so visually appealing. Yeah. And this is going to start setting up, you know, our dwarf gods are probably going to start because we're bringing this in and it's a holy site and they've got these statues. Well, our dwarf gods are probably going to be lovers of some way, shape or form. That brings interesting flavor, interesting tone that people haven't really seen before. These are not going to be the standard crafting or or logical or pragmatic dwarven gods. These are going to be emotional and, and full of, of passion and this is going to... You see how just by coming up with the landscape and a landmark, we have now changed the inherent idea of what, I guess, mountain dwarves yep. are. That they're now they're just full of love. And I bet there are more dwarven bards in this in this setting. Now. Oh, yeah. And, and they're emotional and full of passion. I, I, love, I love everything about this. Understanding your landmarks and why they are the way that they are is so important. It's not just about what's here, come up with a cool idea, but then understand why. So to the south, in the city that we are going to destroy, but we're going to set this up, they don't know that it's been destroyed yet, okay? In the south, there is a temple, but it is one of these palace temples. It's a it's a Taj Mahal. It's utterly massive, and it's a temple to all the gods. It's a gleaming mecca of all religions. It's peaceful with blank areas for personal shrines to be temporarily used there are dozens and dozens and dozens of of these small little chambers that can be used as personal chapels or that there, there can be these massive uh open air portions in it as well these gardens where you can pray to your gods and be closer to the heavens all sacrifices all offerings all peoples are welcome 
There's no murder and there's no killing of any creature that has a language. But you can sacrifice a goat in here and it's just as equal as your pacifist um, or, or your, your lover gods. Yeah. Uh, and everyone gets the opportunity to, to be here. This is the church of many faiths. Mm-hmm. And it's got this massive palace temple and it's a gleaming wonder. It, it takes up a massive portion of the city. And I, the city's kind of been built around it. I mean, you, we, we, we talked how the city's going to be a bit of a trade hub. And by a bit, I mean the trade hub. Absolutely. Which means you're going to have people from every single culture, culture in this world coming here to do business. Well, if they're here to do business and we've already established that faith is a big part of this, they're also going to be here to worship. And you need to have this here for that reason. Think about the pilgrimages that would go through your main town, like where our heroes are going to be, the smaller town. Think of all the different pilgrimages that are going to go through there once a year, once a decade, however often. Or just constantly. Like you could have interesting NPCs who are passing through town on their pilgrimage. Full stop. That gives you really interesting NPCs to deal with. And this is why we've chosen this multicultural hub. Because it allows us to inject whatever flavor we're going to come up with as we go. Because as you guys can tell, we're flying by the seat of our pants on this one. (laughs) We are building this campaign as we go. Um... With only the most basic idea of what we want to do. So we're keeping our options open. And we're doing that because we want to kind of show you guys. If you are going to pitch a campaign to your players, like we mentioned before, you need it to be open. You need to keep yourself free. Otherwise, you're going to plan yourself in a hole. Even if you have a railroad concept, you need your world to be a sandbox if when you start doing it, when mm. you start building the map. So I really like this this temple. Now we know that the city is going to crash down into the sinkhole, and I love the idea of there being urban ruins hanging on cliff sides. Oh yeah, bits and pieces. Um, now imagine this temple on its side, and you have to climb sideways down through it. And all of the people that would have rushed to the temple during the rumblings and whatnot, and the carnage and the gore and the and the the skeletons of mothers holding babies and things oh, like that. Rough. Like so this is really cool. Imagine the underdark coming up and all of these spider creatures now have this temple wrapped up in spider webs. There's a really cool imagery of this gleaming beacon of hope falling to ruin. Yep. And I mean it's going to be a really great metaphor of the gods straight up disappearing. Now to the west we have this dark digi swamp and uh, we discussed how um, we wanted to have something less stationary. We have this massive city. We have this, uh, to the south, we have these this monastery in this one mountain that's not moving to the north. So we're going to have this large palace, this this hut that is Baba Yaga's hut, this, this house on chicken legs. But this thing's huge. Um, a whole coven of witches and uh, hags live inside of this thing. So for those of you that are not familiar with it, Baba Yaga is a famous fabled witch. She's in a couple of different fables, yeah. but she's got this hut that she lives in that stomps around the forest on massive chicken legs. And it's like 20 feet tall. And it's just the weirdest Scandinavian freaking bizarre uh, is it Scandinavian or Germanic? I don't, it's Germanic. Is it Germanic? Yeah. Anyway, but it's the this most bizarre addition to fables and dan just freaking loved it oh i I absolutely adore it um so i wanted to put it in the campaign and um what this thing does is it stomps around the entire 
swamp to the west. And these hags flow out of it, disguised in the various forms that they do to collect children, because I really want to embrace this, you know, witches eat children trope. I really wanted to embrace that. Um, so they go and they kidnap children to bring them back to either add them to the coven if they're female or murder them and eat them if they're male. We're hitting different kinds of landmarks as well. This is one of the things that we really wanted to impress upon everyone. We're still dealing with beings of incredible power. These witches, they probably don't have gods, but I bet maybe the night hags, they pray to some of the lower, like the, the demon lords oh, and yeah. the arch devils and whatnot. There are going to be the hags that have warlock patrons. They, they pray to great old ones. And all of these beings have gone missing as well, right? And so what do the hags, how are the hags dealing with this? So if you go to the swamps and you're there to deal with the, the swamp elves or you're there for some high adventure, you need to get some sort of, of magic item for a component, for a spell, for whatever it is, yeah. there's a decent chance that you're going to run across this hag or, or this, this hag's hut, this coven, or maybe just one that's been spewed out looking for people and there are rumors of the the mansion that moves, whatever yeah. it is. Well, you could establish this rumor all the way around that people who go to the swamp disappear. They just, they go missing. And you could slowly, if, if your party starts working their way over there, because someone important to an NPC that they like is got, has gone missing near the swamp and they go, you could start dropping little hints that the, you know, there's these secret trails that all lead through the through the swamp in a meandering fashion that seem to go nowhere, but they all always end up at the hut. No, even when the hut moves. Even when the hut moves, yeah. So, like... It's a swamp. Everything's liquid. So, there are these great ideas that we're coming up with for plot hooks for sessions just because we're building landmarks mm -hmm. and we would have never done this if we hadn't thought of our landscape and we need to know our landscape based on who our uh who or what our plot is now you'll notice that our big bad evil guys none of them are a hag so these are just more bad guys that we're just throwing in more conflict because we may come across it at some point but this is not our big plot driven forward um NPC, the big evil. It's just something neat that we want to throw in. It's there. just more evil. Yeah. And, <laughs> and this is important as well to, to keep in mind as well, that you can hold on to all of your ideas and conflicts. And if we end up in tier two, we don't know. If we end up over there dealing with hags for a level or two, how is that going to impact us dealing with drought priestesses mm -hmm. or whatever? We have no idea. We'll get there. You don't need to know this. You just need to be able to establish this for your players, that this swamp with, I don't know, there's Coven of Witches over there. Somewhere. Somewhere. You don't know. It's always moving around. It will bring interest out of your players, and that's what you want to establish at this stage. And so keep this in mind. You're like, well, maybe I don't want a hut on legs. But if you're doing a pirate campaign, you can have the massive pirate ship that, that hides in the mists. The ghost ship. Yeah. yeah. If I mean, if you're doing a giant campaign, you can have storm giants that live on the clouds and the clouds drift and move. Having these landmarks that are, that are consistently moving as well adds a really crazy fantasy feel to it. And really embraces the, as we feel, misused or underused third pillar of this game, exploration. Now, to the east is a massive lighthouse. This is right on the um, edge of the coast. 
As a matter of fact, I think the the bottom of the lighthouse is being hit by water. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe you can you can enter it from land, but the base of it is is crashed against by by the waves and whatnot. This is a lighthouse that was once built eons ago by storm giants who have long since left. And this is where the mages live. The mages want nothing to do with the port city below where trade is coming in and out. There's no, um, there's no real, uh, civilization that, that's here, but they've got this weird, uh, little, little tower at the very top of this spire that you can see from anywhere in the world. Yeah. Because storm giants built it and it is massive. We don't navigate by the North Star on this continent. We navigate by the tower. Yeah. And this thing will take days, if not weeks, to just descend to the top of it. Yes. So up at the top are going to be these gnome wizards that let live up there. Oh. And I mean, if you, if you think it takes you weeks, think about their little legs. <laughs> <laughs> so there are the, it's a spiral staircase goes all the way around inside, but think how big this place would need to be to hold multiple levels of many different storm giants. And up at the top is the, is the lighthouse. And there's, there is definitely a light that rotates up there. Maybe it's alchemical. Maybe it's arcane magic. But this is not a place for the gods. This is a place where the wizard's college is. Oh, yeah. Here. This is, this is where the university, the, 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 even the Bardic College might be down at the base of this, um, somewhere, right? Like, I mean, there's so many different tiers to this tower as you're going up. You could really populate this as you want. But remember, this thing is massive. It's a hub. Like, all of your noble families and nobility, even your more, um, your more wealthy merchants or whatnot are going to want to send their kids here. And this is why we've established that the mages kind of are the nobility. They're the ones who are making this world move, and they're doing it from this tower. Yeah. And while they tolerated all of that, that nonsense god talk in the city, on the dirty city folk, up here, they're more enlightened, pardon the pun. <laughs> so, so we really like the idea of this, this massive lighthouse that you can see from everywhere that descends up or that ascends up into the clouds. Uh, and the top of it disappears, but you can see the clouds lighting up. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and there are rumors that someday the giants may come back for it. And they don't have to during your campaign. No, but but that's just a really neat idea of them always being in fear of more giants coming back, and they're or based on the size, there are you know there's always secrets being discovered within this tower that they had no idea have been there for eons. Yeah, and so you can you can if you ever need to go find wizards or or there's going to be a quest that the guild sends you on to go find a mage, you know you're heading to the tower. Mm-hmm. It's very simple and straightforward. We took the idea of a wizard's tower and ramped it up to 11 because, again, fantastical world, do not be limited by what the books tell you. When you're building your map and it's a homebrew campaign, go to town. So we've talked about all of the surrounding environs. Let's talk about our home. We are in the town of... Sands Pit. Yes, the Sands uh, as in like uh, of the Sands, this is the pit in the middle because there's bedrock in the bottom of like of this impression in the desert where the swirling sands all the way around. Yeah. And I mean, this is one of those things where you will have um those multicolor sands. You have the 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 tainted soil from the swamplands and the 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 darker sands from the um, base of the mountains and whatnot have kind of coalesced in this area. 
to have this weird multicolor sand spiral in this town that this town is based around. Keeping in mind, it is days and days, if not weeks and weeks of days of travel away from all of these places, but over time. And we're really trying to hit this idea of there being history. You'll see that with the lover's um, spire, mm-hmm. uh, the the hags running around this ancient temple or this massive lighthouse. There's history to this world. Yeah. We want it to feel lived in. And so the idea of the sands having migrated into the central area and spiraling and mixing together is also an idea of, of why we're going to have... I mean, the players will all pick races that have nothing to do with each other. You're going to end up with a Triton and a Minotaur and an elf and... A, a tiefling. Yeah, right. And they're going to have no reason to be together, but <laughs> but here they are. Yeah. And so we, we wanted to kind of lean into that. The other thing that we wanted to do, which will be kind of fun for us, um, is it's originally called Sans Pit, but everyone calls it Sand Spit. Because we just think that it's cool to start off in a little kind of dinky town. It's just called Sand Spit. No one wanna lives in Sand Spit. Exactly. And so we want to explore further, bigger, better parts of the world. This is Luke's Tatooine. Yes. Right? Where you start off in a place that's good enough, but it's not good enough. Yeah. Right? And so... It's good enough for your life, but it's not good enough for your future. Exactly. And so Sand Spit is, is where we're going to start off. I'm excited about it. And this is the, the smaller hub. Yeah. Well, it's not only a smaller hub, but like we've talked about guilds. All the guilds should be present here in some way, shape, or form, or at least have a presence. Um, and with this spiraling connection to the sands, this, this, the town's going to be oddly circular, yep. I would suspect, right? And we are next to like this major crossroads in the middle of the desert. There's going to be some travel through here, but no one ever wants to stay. Everyone is, there's huge turnover. It is, everyone's coming and then they're leaving. I would, I would say almost that there are walls to this town as well, not only to keep the sand out, but also to uh, keep the criminals on the roads out as well. Yeah. You can only enter if you have traveling papers. Let's be completely honest. This is still a backwater town. So you can only come in through with traveling papers, but traveling papers, they might be easily forged. Yeah. It, honestly, if you if you have the gold, you can come on in and <laughs> come to the inn, right? Yeah. So, um, it, but there's just going to be that, the, the ability to keep the goblins out, right? The uh, Like the goblin traders or pirates or whatever. And what this does is it protects your main city for that first tier so that your players have something that they're anchored to. This is where you will be starting a lot of your NPC interactions and relationships. And 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 uh, this is where you'll be getting your first several missions from. So it's got to be something your players can grasp onto. Right? And, and if you make it too high and mighty they'll and high flutin, your party will ignore it. If you make it too lowly, your party will ignore it. It's just got to be this nice, quaint little home that they can go to. The other thing, too, is that we are going to talk about defending it when we hit about level 10. Yep. So having walls is important. If the Underdark is flooding out and there's going to be a massive army of drow, then you put them in the desert and you put a wall in their way and you give loose sand beneath their feet. This is going to even the playing field for a little bit so your players have a chance. Mm-hmm. Now, we are still kind of sending them up to kind of lose and maybe they retreat and maybe the city falls, but it's going to be the question of how many days of food, how many rations do we have? Will we watch the tent city of travelers outside fall? Yeah. While we sit in our safety here. And there's some really interesting, neat questions to ask based on this geography and, and our landmark 
is this is the town itself and it doesn't feel like a landmark necessarily at the beginning but every starting town should be so we have all of these places to visit in the north in the east and the west and the south is just a great big pit we're not ready to head down there yet but we know that we have to go investigate so what is our landmark what are we doing down south that is um going to give us the opportunity to have neat exploration for for that pillar of D&D in the early tiers before we decide to descend into the Underdark. And Dan and I decided that, well, we've got kind of this theme of going going low where the mountains are high and the lighthouse is high. We, we've got this, this pit in the Underdark that is low. Let's put in a Grand Canyon. And maybe the players will, will think that there's some sort of meaning between the Grand Canyon and this massive sinkhole in early, in early levels, but but no. It's just a Grand Canyon. It is just a massive trench in the hard-packed desert that exists with water flowing through the bottom of it. It's not a filled with a river, but there is a small like stream that runs through, yeah. and a small city, a civilization, has built up. Yeah, and the, what they've done is, because it's the Grand Canyon, you could get really interesting and have you know your city built along the walls of the Grand Canyon, and they have these massive bridges, rope bridges, um strung in between them all or know what go chain bridges and have little chimes hanging from it and then you can name this place the jingling city yeah so one of the things that we wanted to impress upon early as well is the idea of exploration being more than just visual and we wanted to hit the auditory yeah so that's where we came up with the idea of the jingling city so these chains with these wind chimes hanging off and these bells and whatnot you can hear from miles away and you can't see where you're going in the deserts with the shifting sands and the fact that the city is it's technically, yeah, it's underground. It's yeah. below the surface level. So you can't go, you don't know where you're going, but you can only, you can only find it by following your ears. And so we thought that was a really interesting and neat way of, of doing it. And then there'll be tunnels out of it in either direction as well to, to help you get to the next portion of your journey yeah and this will kind of be uh the way to wet the palate of the players to have them you know leave sand spits to go somewhere else like this this is going to be their intro to the campaign will be around the jingling city this is also where we're going to put our mage with the imp yep and this is also going to be where we have our first line of defense against the underdark and think about the idea of having to evacuate into tunnels as hundreds of drow automatically get the high ground and you can't hide your city there are no walls they're coming for you with their expert archers are sitting there above on the ledges shooting down and there's nothing you can do about it except evacuate into the tunnels you can't pull all of the chains and all of the bells and chimes they're coming to investigate they know you're there they found you yeah and so you're going to have to retreat from here. There's going to be an evacuation. This gives us something to do with Tier 2. You'll notice that the landscape that we have, these landmarks that we've given ourselves, all have a plot hook or a reason or a history, whatever it is, because we want to have an idea about where to go next, and we want the players to have a, a fantastical world to explore and a reason behind everything so that it's not just... Oh, yeah, there's a flying tower over there, and over in this direction is, like, I don't know, a bunch of, of halflings. And then um, there's a Goliath totem. That <laughs> it's, it's made of rocks. It's there because the Goliaths like it. Yep. 
there's no payoff for that, right? There's no real sense of dramatic urgency or irony or anything. So have a reason behind everything, not just a history, but also a future of what are your plot hooks. So before we finish off this episode really quickly, one of the things that Dan and I discussed is that we do not want to do an Arctic campaign. We aren't going to play with seasons. There's not going to be a hurricane season or a flood season or or a cold season or a hot season. We're just going to play a standard temperate kind of, of world here. Yep. It's going to be a little bit hot. You don't want to get lost in the desert. But it's not going to be brutally harsh and there's droughts or anything. That can very much be an aspect of your campaign and you can go ahead and play with that. But that is a level of exploration of calendar management, of tracking time that we don't want to get too complex with because we don't even know who our players or characters are yet. Yep. And we don't know what kind of outdoorsman or mage we're going to end up with. Our mage could very easily be a druid who can control weather. At which point... Well, that, that all that planning's moot. Exactly. Or we could have an outdoorsman that is just built for the Arctic. At which point our... Like, <laughs> You're in the wrong campaign, buds. Yeah, right. So... <laughs> So, because we know about the seasons as well, and we know kind of the area around us, we can help guide the players in Session Zero against choosing, you know, Circle of the Arctic or, or the Natural Explorer of the, of the Coast. We may not be getting there. No. We might, but we're really focused on kind of this basic idea of here's the desert, Here's the hard pack. The options are swamp, mountain, coast, urban. And yeah, under dark maybe. We'll do a lot of underdark stuff much later. But you get to pick up, I think you get to pick up a second natural explorer, don't you? Eventually, yeah. So that's why we've decided to start with this location and build it in this in this manner. What ways are you going to take our ideas and flip them on their head? Let us know. Now that we got a good grasp on where our players are in the world, let's take a week and allow the ideas to solidify. Hopefully, this will give us some opportunities to come up with some interesting guilds that would exist within the world we've just set up. Tune in next week when we discuss organizations that will make this campaign on the missing gods as memorable as possible. Thanks for listening to this episode of the new It's a Mimic Campaign Builder series. You can find us at www.itsamimic.com and on iTunes, Spotify, and most podcast catchers. We're also available on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and more. And we would love to hear your thoughts on how you would use this episode in your homebrew campaigns. I'm Adam. And I'm Dan. And we'll be back with more prep work next week. So we're laser focused on our locations, our uh, landscapes for our starting area. So what we're going to do now, Adam, we're going to grab our dice and we're going to roll. And each of us are going to go back and forth the way we have on the previous episodes and pitch three ideas for what a starting location is for our party. Okay, so the I just wanted to be clear. The only one that we're not going to include out of the basic package is the Underdark. 
And the only one that you and I truly agree, the only ones that were like, this is glaringly missing and should be on the list, would be either urban or open ocean. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if, for that, sure. That would include underwater, right? Yeah. So, yeah. Okay. okay, so let's grab our dice and let's roll. Uh, I got a 12. I got a 17. So I'm going to go first. Um, when we were pitching this idea, I want it to be that high fantasy start off thing. So I would love it to be in the grasslands. Um, That's pretty standard. It's very standard. It, it, it kind of gets you... It, it, it's that comfortable space to start from, right? Um, there's You're not going to expect any you know marauders from the woods or... or um, you're not having to deal with weather issues right out the gate. You could get your party established and then move them to a different location to make them encounter weather issues. So um, my first thing right out the gate, gas, grasslands. I like grasslands. I think that that's, that's a fun place to start. I want to start off, we talked about there, uh, we know that one of our big plot points, because we discussed this before, mm-hmm. is going to be this big sinkhole that swallows a city. Well, instead of starting off in a tiny little town in a tavern, why not start off in a big city in a tavern at a guildhouse with a whole bunch of different people moving around? And you have to go out to the borderlands to fight, to hear about this uh, this rumor that's happening. So I would say, why not start off in a, in a big city? Okay, why not cool. choose urban? No, I really like that. Um, I was actually going to kind of branch off of that and say, um, you could start in... Uh, we, when we're doing these, we're always kind of focusing on more human-centered settlements. So mm-hmm. towns, villages, cities, these kind of things. They scream human. I'm. I, let, why do we have to do that? I say let's let's start with something that's a little bit more down to earth and dwarven. Let's start in the mountains, right? And your your party, even though you might not all necessarily be dwarves, can start in this craggy mountain. Settlement built on the side of a mountain, and there's stairways and long bridges throughout the settlement that you're starting on. Right? Well, yeah, and that that lets you choose Goliaths and Aarakocra and other things as mm-hmm. well, right? Yeah. So depending on how your party goes, that might be a really interesting place to start. Uh, I'm going to go kind of the exact like opposite of of big mountains and dwarves. I would like to go to the desert. I don't think there's enough desert play because it gives you a whole lot of options for survival checks. And if maybe this tavern where you're starting at where the guild house is, is, uh, is an oasis. There's a one town in the middle of the desert where travelers have to stop or they will starve or die of thirst. This is where you, you restock. This is a waypoint in the desert. Mm-hmm. And uh, maybe then when, that, when the ground opens up and swallows the city, it's the next waypoint. And oh my god, travel's cut off. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, I really like that. Um, I, you know what? I'm going to take that. I'm going to twist a little bit. And instead of it being, you know, uh, the the rolling uh, dunes of the deserts, let's do the rolling waves of the ocean. And instead of it being a, uh, um, we'll keep the idea of it being a waypoint, but it's because it's on that one island. And now you are an entire island-based culture, and you're having to deal with boat travel from these things. And the city that gets swallowed gets swallowed under the waves. How's that going to open up into the Underdark? Easy. The ocean's draining into the Underdark. Oh my god. Yeah, right? <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, you just threw me for a loop on that. Wow. Okay, I like that. Yeah. Um, and and the last one that I thought was, we, we often, when we go adventuring, we do dungeons and whatnot, we think of the dungeons and the external areas as being uh, wet, dank, dark places but if you started there if you start in a swamp and you're used to it and there are like bullywug traders 
and whatnot that are around, that's going to give you a brand new different feeling to this as a lived-in society right from the beginning where all of the stone structures are already covered in moss and there's mm-hmm. vines hanging all over the place. There'll be a lot more poisons involved in this. Oh, yeah. This this will be very much, if you go this route, you're basically playing with the Witcher in your back in the, in the in your periphery, you're playing that with this kind of. You're riding through the swamps. You're dealing with hags and witches and things like that as well. Are going to be a part. The occult is going to play a little bit more into your campaign based on that location. And this is going to give you something that's close enough to your standard opening forest without letting you um, get lost in the. Oh, there's three more trees over there, and in that tree is a, another kind of bird. 